Greetings, dear listener. Thomas Gloom here. It was about a year ago from the time of this recording that I first had the pleasure of reading a story written by Mona Kabani. I was out of town, staying in a hotel, and I brought Mona's novella, The Bell Chime, with me. The book is essentially a fever dream of literary and psychological horror. I had a deliciously wicked time reading it, and had no clue at the time that within a year I'd have the opportunity to share an Into the Gloom exclusive with y'all in the form of a sneak peek into Mona's upcoming dark fantasy horror release entitled For You. You'll have to wait until August 11th, 2022 to read it in its entirety. But, as a tasty little treat, Mona and I offer you this free gift to whet your appetite. So, dear listener, sit back, quiet your mind, and remember to leave a light on as I read you the opening section of For You. For You Written by Mona Kabani Narrated by Thomas Gloom Part 1 The gods have blessed Muharib with a beautiful morning. It's the same kind of morning she's enjoyed from home day in and day out. A home so far away now. The clouds are parted. The sky a vibrant blue like a plate of purest glass floating down river. Ravens swim through the air, sunlight reflecting the oil-slick color from their plump feathers. Even their song this morning is beautiful. Only she won't be awake for long to enjoy it. This knowledge frightens her, though she doesn't care to admit it. This day isn't blessed. It's a mockery, a cruel joke, as if offering her the crispus of oxygen, knowing it is difficult for her to breathe. And the mirage of this blessing only reaches the horizon. Everything beneath it is cursed. Muharib is on a wagon traveling through the region of Bayaj, the northernmost tip of country, also known as the Falling Peak. The region smells of crematorium smoke and dread, death, and fear. The buildings here are crooked and black with soot from the burning dead. Their pointy domes, middle fingers to all that fester here because they know the color the sky turns at night. Citizens of this city move in various directions, carrying baskets and coughing into their rags. They jitter about like mice, afraid of the stories, afraid of each other. But rumors are just rumors, and chores must be done. Their baskets are empty, after all, and they cannot eat words. The wagon's lopsided wheels creak under the weight of her, the driver and that of her companions. Muharib eyes the driver. He holds the reins of a great horse and wears a mask. 
one with a long, black beak and round, dark lenses to see through as though he is a bird of death, as though he believes himself worthy of the symbolism of a god. Perhaps this will protect him. Perhaps it will anger something far beyond him. Muharib will never know. For passengers are not granted the same illusion of safety. It would be a waste. They are all already dead. She looks before her, at the three bodies seated on the opposing bench. To the left is a man, short and fat, who wears a filthy gray shirt made of a textile not even she can identify. Seated center is a brute, a colossal behemoth in a beige tunic, who has remained hunched over, staring down at his large hands for the entirety of this trip. To the right is a woman in rags of red wrapped around her like a dress, the garb of a healer. Unfamiliar faces. People she would never meet in her life back home. Muharib wiggles her wrists slightly under the pressure of the braided restraints beneath the cuffs of her leather gloves. It is a reminder of her promise. A necessity, but it induces a claustrophobia in her all the same. Perhaps if she could twist this way or that, she could relieve herself of the discomfort. Still, when the ropes dig into her reddening skin, she cries out. The stout man to the left looks up at her, alerted by the sound. Ain't no use, he mumbles after realizing what she is attempting. She nods and tries to break eye contact, but he holds her stare, a light flickering on in his eye where it was moments ago dim. His brow furrows and his mouth slackens. His bottom lip droops forward as if to swan-dive off his face, and his eyes squint until she can't tell if he is awake or suddenly asleep. She jumps when he animates with recognition. Hey! The tone of his voice alerts the healer to look up. Ain't you the merchant's girl? Hubbin's daughter? Muharib tightens her lips, but the stout man is grinning now shaking his head as if to quash the denial she has yet to express. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I've seen you in them newspapers. Our next textile empress. Pissed job they did with them photos, but enough for my eyes to recognize ye. The woman leans in. Her rags are so thick and of such a peculiar red, as if she was plucked from right off her workbench and placed in this wagon. When she leans forward, her restraints creak against her thin wrists. If there is any pain, she pays it no mind. My words, she says. In her astonishment, her open mouth shows teeth that are dyed black, a sign of high achievement. Despite the harsh grooves in her skin, the sharp features and razor-thin eyebrows. Her voice is like a deep ocean. Soothing. That she is. The man spits. His saliva lands in a puddle that jiggles on the wooden planks. What's the daughter of a high table member doing on the wagon to the falling peak? 
He says this through a veneer of jest, but Muharib can sense the fear behind his words. She feels it too. What's your luck? The woman adds. The man smirks. Pull the short end of the law. Perhaps the gods no longer bestow luck upon countries blessed. They struggle to keep their cackles down. They are nervous, creating noise to stave off their worries. The ravens crowding the surrounding rooftops join in, cawing to punctuate the mood. The brute seated between them lifts his head for the first time and looks directly at Muharib from across the wagon. He could squash her beneath his boot if he so wished, she thinks. And if the woman's voice is a deep ocean, his is the world beneath. Leave her be, eh? If her luck with the gods has run out, yours is overdue. The duo quiets. They struggle with the thought. Muharib can see it twisting on their faces. When their minds reach the extent of the sentiment, their eyes widen and they look away as though they've spotted a particular raven and are tracking its flight, lips pursed. Muharib is thankful for the change in attention. Jofgesh, the brute says. It takes a moment for her to realize he is telling her his name and not just clearing his throat. There's a scar on his cheek that meets the top of his lip. It quivers as he speaks. At country service. The duo returns their attention to the center of the cart, finding it newly palatable. Yennefer L. The woman offers with a small smile, black teeth hidden. The stout man grunts. Marxis! Marxis check! He says, putting a belching emphasis on the arcs. The skin of his wrist goes white from the pressure his expanding stomach applies against his restraints. He doesn't seem to mind. He's smiling like a drunk. Which makes you Muharib Ka, and us the sorriest council members in country. I'd like to think I'd make a fine council member. Yennefer comments. Marxist turns to her, a sneer on his face. You're here, ain't you? I'm guessing you didn't exactly volunteer. You don't know what I've done, or not done, she counters stubbornly. Marxist rolls his eyes. Oi, lady claims she's a volunteer. Sure, just like I volunteered to be thrown into the mouths of wolves. It was either this or the dungeons. Not much of a choice. Not much of a volunteer. What was the sentence for? Hmm? Yennefer squints, annoyed. For the dungeons. What did you do for the dungeons? Oh! Marxist leans back and laughs. Well, I might just be the unluckiest man in all of country. Might have pissed on Wendelhelm Street one too many times. Might have done it in the wrong place at the wrong hour, in front of the wrong lord and lady. 
who'd decided the city'd had enough of me, if you catch my meaning. He spits again. So, here I am, at country's service. Yennefer lifts her lip in repulsion. And what fine service you'll deliver. Marxus leans over. Only he doesn't get so far on account of his massive gut. And eyes Yennefer from across Joff's chest. Yeah? And what's gotten you the privilege of my pleasant company, Hela? He speaks her title with disdain. But it's just a wound, a hurtful lie. No one regards healers with aversion. Perhaps with pity. She glares, sits back, and looks up at the sky. Oi! Didn't you hear me? I asked. The story goes. Yennefer begins, cutting off Marxists like a calm blade through turbulent waters. The healer's garb begins as white. It's a symbol of her introduction into medicine. To show country that they are new and will offer a cheap price because they need the practice. As time goes on, the garb turns red from the failures, from the experience. When you have the money, you seek the healers with the deepest reds. When you don't, you risk the ones in white. But in the end, you are contributing. You are contributing to the evolution of medicine. Muhadib realizes it now. How deep the color of Yennefer's rags is. It's a circle, a beautiful circle. But those with the deepest reds are expected to provide no risk, are quick and precise. Ga, Hiren. Do good, harm none. She sighs, and it's like she's sinking into her skeleton beneath the weight of all that saturation. I receive the honor and pleasure of healing Lord Effigy's son. The pup was barely a year old, sick as a horse, frail, already past his time. I thought luck might be bestowed. I did what I could, said little, and sent him home. When she holds her hands out to emote, to pray, the restraints remind her of her bonds, and she drops them again into her lap. She rolls her wrists instead, letting the ropes dig. He died in his sleep, their one and only heir. I was in Maynar when it happened. They sent me walking, and I never stopped. I walked for days across country, as if the shame were following me, and if I were to stop, it would catch up and consume me whole. I didn't realize where I was going until this wagon paused and I let it take me. Now I am here, for where else would I be? I am destined for the black, and when I am found, when they strip me of my reds and don me with the black, I will be nothing. The black. The third color in the spectrum of a healer's life, though it is worn by few. Whereas white is the caution of a new blood, black is the caution of old blood gone wrong. Something cursed. The wagon finds silence. It only lasts a moment. Piss on that, Marxist says. 
Yennefer stomps her foot and glares at him. Piss on everything, huh? You fat, ugly pig? Marxist laughs. <laughs> sure, sure. Tis a very sad affair indeed. But what's it got to do with you? The little shit was a runt. It's no reason for them to dress you in the black on account of a runt. Sure as hell ain't no reason to send you into the belly of Bayarge. Yennefer huffs, blowing back a lock of short brown hair from her eyes. She faces forward, finding the view of Marxus no longer agreeable. But there is the faintest phantom of a smile on her lips. Muharib sees it on the corner of her mouth. I deserve this, the healer concludes. Her wrists continue their rolling without chance of relief. Marxist groans. Good for you. What about you, eh? He nudges Joff, finding a new target, practically leaning against him now. What's a brute like yourself doing on these four wheels of the apocalypse, huh? Sold, Joff says. And for a second, Marxist grows eerily still. Sold? No one is sold anymore. Marxist's bottom lip quivers. He wants to ask for the details. He wants to ask where the brute came from. If he was indeed a bondsman, and to whom? Judging by the way he glances down at Joff's biceps, as thick as a horse's rear leg, he opts to keep his nose out of it, and clear of any potential breakage for what he must know is an inappropriate intrusion. Instead, he turns back to Muharib. I'm guessing you're not up to speaking any more than before. Why is she here? That's what he wants to know. What they all want to know. These strangers watching her. And wouldn't that be nice? To know. If she opened her mouth now to speak, no words would come. The memories have all but drowned and left rocks in her throat. Speaking would break the dam holding back her dormant emotions. The ones whose raison d'etre she cannot recall. All she has is an ache, a drive telling her this is where she belongs. When she doesn't answer, Marxist shrugs. Suit yourself. No one looks at him. No one speaks further. The wheels of the wagon clabber on, spitting out stones and tiny pebbles from their path. Marxist squirms under the silence. Then his grin returns, mouth latching on to the next topic of conversation. Bets, who do you reckon will wrangle up the most white sights? This chapter was taken from For You by Mona Kabani. You can pre-order the ebook version, which is slated for publication by Full Sturgeon Moon on August 11th, 2022, on Amazon. Or, if you'd like a signed paperback copy, head on over to Mona's Instagram page, at Morality in Horror, and click on the link in her profile. 
This Into the Gloom exclusive audio production was used with the permission of both the author and publisher.